Welcome, everybody, to the Steve Jordan Experience. It is awesome to have you here with me today, and it is a great pleasure to have my guest, who is one of the leading spine surgeons, Dr. Adoran. He is a spine surgeon, but not only a spine surgeon, he's an author, an author of a book called Corporate Spine. And it's a book that has, he was telling me a little bit before we went online about some of the controversies within spine surgery over the past 20 plus years that he has found a source as to why back surgery is probably not the best idea for you. And where I came from, I, you know, I told him that I had back surgery in 2020. 2001, I had a microdisectomy L5S1 from a herniated disc that debilitated me. I was nearly, I was about 27, 28 years old, and I felt like I was 98 years old. It was successful for me, but it is often very unsuccessful for most people who have surgeries. I'm here almost 19 years later, fortunately, without pain, and I just have to manage it. But Doctor, can you tell us more about, again, your background, your history with spine surgery, and then get into your book, Corporate Spine, and then this controversy that you were sharing with me before we went online? Sure. First, I would like to thank you for inviting me. It's a great pleasure to give me a chance to express and explain what situation we're in, in terms of the spine care and the world of spine surgery, basically. So uh, I will start from the beginning so the audience can have some sort of an idea. First, I wanted to tell the audience that I've written a book. The book is Corporate Spine. And I talk about controversy in the world of spine surgery because the evidence shows something and we are practicing something completely different. Now, this evidence are papers that have been published in our journal called Spine Journal. And all the leaders of the field are aware of it. And for some reason that I would explain my take of it, these evidence is being ignored and we are practicing something that goes against the evidence. So well, let me let me let me stop you there for a second, Dr. Artivan. I want the audience also to understand your background and your history as far as your education. It is one that is quite high. You're a board certified spine surgeon and you received your undergraduate degree from the University of California, Berkeley, not too shabby, and you double majored in physiology and genetics. Again, very impressive. You earned your MD from New York Medical College and completed your residency at St. Vincent's Hospital in New York City, one of the premier hospitals in New York City where some of the most well-known affluent people in New York City go. And then you received your spine surgery fellowship training at Harvard University. So you are someone who is very highly educated, very high standards. You're not coming out of nowhere. You're someone that does, you, you, you've been in the trenches. You're, you're surrounding yourself around the best of the best. Correct. And the other thing that I have to tell you that's much more important than the, the things that you mentioned is that I had an invention uh, that my invention won the Innovation Showcase in Congress of Neurological Surgeons in 2015. That means that my invention was considered worthy enough to be presented to the neurosurgical community in 2015. So I'm legit. Well, uh, yeah, you are, you are too legit to quit. Um, right, what is right. the name of that invention? It's a, a Asley Laminar Plating System. And that's the reason that actually led me to uncover this controversy, actually. Um, so... Um, Let's start from the beginning, uh, yeah. back surgery. Uh, well, for, for, to make it a little bit interesting for the audience, you know, I would like to say, you know, who is a candidate for back surgery? Uh, I always tell my patients that as a spine surgeon, my job is to avoid surgery. My job is to do whatever I can not to do surgery. And about uh, now, the different spine surgeons can be in different types of practice. My practice is in private practice by myself. I don't cover emergency room. I don't work in a university referral center. So I don't see cancer, uh, tumors, bad infections, or uh, trauma, like a car accident or so. I used to, not anymore. Uh, so my practice is uh, somebody who's been injured at work or a car accident or at home or something. 
and they have slipped the disc and they have back and leg pain, neck or arm pain, and I have to treat them basically. So the way I explain to my patients is that treatment of neck and back pain falls into three stages. The first stage is what we call manipulative treatments. The whole idea is to manipulate the body with one technique or the other and try to get them better. In that category, you have chiropractic care, physical therapy, acupuncture, massage, bloody, you, you name it. It's a whole world by itself. And and one like, of the, and, and let, me, let me interrupt you there. In those areas, have you found one modality more successful than any of the others? Absolutely. And by the way, before we go any further, I want to say that everything that I say, it's in my book. I've explained it in my book. Um, so... Now, I am very, I just want to say that I'm very different from the rest of my colleagues. If you ask any spine surgeon, uh, the chances are they're not going to be very uh, nice to chiropractic care. Um, they're going to probably think the chiropractic care doesn't do anything. And uh, because by training, we are orthopedic surgeon and we work with physical therapists quite closely, our tendencies to send the patient to a physical therapist uh, initially, let's say when, the, when you first see the patient. Well, let me tell you one thing. Uh, when I started my practice in 2002, and that's the mindset that I had, I was like, you know, hey, I was taught, I was trained by my professors that, oh, chiropractic care doesn't work. It's, you know, we don't know what they're doing. They think they can cure everything. Just forget it. So that was my attitude. But my, me being a very open-minded person, uh, I'm kind of a person that says, uh, you know, you got to look at all the options. You cannot uh, dismiss anything. Um, so I looked at myself. I said, you know, why am I dismissing it? Let me, let me figure out what this chiropractic is. The more I talked to the chiropractors, the more I, you know, attended their office and I talked to them and sent patients back and forth, my jaw dropped. I mean, I was so pleasantly surprised that actually chiropractic care is so useful, so helpful, that I started sending my patients to them. And then five years into my practice, I figured out why, why spine surgeons are so negative about these things. And this is what happened one time, one story. Uh, I was in San Francisco visiting one of my friends. And uh, as I was leaving, I'll make it short. As I was leaving, his wife said, oh, yeah, my back pain is killing me. I was like, wait a minute. Tell me about that back pain. And she said, yes, she has a herniated disc at L4-5. And then my friend was a radiologist. So my friend jumped in and said, there's no way I'm going to let her have surgery. I'm like, why? She said, you know, I see all day people, I'll see all day MRIs, X-rays, CT scan, failed back. Failed back, failed back surgery, failed back surgery. They're doing these all MRIs and stuff for failed back surgery. So I'm not going to let her do surgery. I'm like, oh, my God, that's when it hit me. It was like almost like a, a lightning. Uh, it all came to me. I told him, I said, you are sitting there because when the surgery is not successful, we order those tests. You're not seeing when, when the surgery is successful, you're not going to say we don't order additional tests. So you're not going to see that part. And that's what kind of hit me. As a spine surgeons, all day, we see people who had other treatments like chiropractic care, injections or so, and they didn't get better. If somebody had chiropractic and got better, they're not going to come and see a surgeon for sure. So we are really, we are in a way biased by our experience in terms of what the patients tell us. And that's a very narrow, very limited type of an experience. So... In my book, I make it clear that the worst thing you can do is tell a specialist, any specialist, what they in, in terms of back care, what they think of other specialties, because they see all day people who have the other alternatives and they didn't get. Because if they get better, why would they come and seek additional treatments, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. yeah. So I always, I always tell my surgeon friends that hey, I have to protect and defend chiropractors with my surgeon friends, but at the same time, I have to protect, I have to defend surgery with my chiropractic friends because my chiropractic friends, they think surgery doesn't work. <laughs> <So> <laughs> and, and, and as I said, it's not a malicious thing. It's not a, you know, ego thing. It's actually, it's just, that's what their experience is. And that's yeah. not, 
the correct experience. But overall, I tell my patients is that if the indication for surgery is pain, and that's about 97% of the patients that I see in my office, about 3% of the patients that I see in my office, they have a bad disc in their neck that they have compression of the spinal cord. Once the spinal cord is compressed, we have to relieve the pressure. So in those situations, I have to tell them that we're going to do a surgery. We're going to have to do a surgery. Other than that, if the indication is for pain, then it's the patient that makes the decision to surgery or no surgery. I always tell my patients, if you think you don't need surgery, that means you don't need surgery. If you think you can't live like this, that's when we do surgery. Yeah. So for a patient to become a surgical candidate, two things needs to happen. One, a patient that has tried everything and has decided that this pain cannot live with this pain. They want to go to the next level. The second thing that needs to happen is that a surgeon can look at the MRI and identify a problem that they can fix with surgery. And that is a training that comes on, comes to us over the years. And I will explain it to you. And that's, I mean, that's, that's what I did when I had my back pain. I mean, it was, I remember waking up one morning and could barely get out of bed and went to a chiropractor. Um, and he looked at me and said, you know, you're, you're a little bit too, too acute right now. There's too much going on. I don't want to touch you. You need to get an MRI. I got an MRI that day, later that day, two days later, the MRI was read, the chiropractor read it and saw that I had these herniated discs. And, uh, I then start to try to manage it myself. And then I went to a pain management specialist, a, um, um, What's the, the name of the, like a doctor, that, like a doctor that does the injections? They a do podiatrist? Yeah, no, no. Anesthesiologist or a physiatrist? No, no, a, podiatr a podiatrist. Physiatrist. Physiatrist. A physiatrist. Yeah. Right. A physiatrist who did cortisone injections. Um, and I had two of those within a few week time span. And then I ended up uh, having little reduction of pain. I was able to be more mobile but I was doing rehab on my own because what I know. And then about three, five months later, it just wasn't getting any better and it was limiting my quality of life. And I made the decision. I went and saw an orthopedic uh, spine surgeon and I made the decision that I had to have the surgery and uh, just to, you know, to do it. And he felt very confident that it was going to be successful. And I was doing all the right things like prehabbing. I was doing prehab before anybody even knew what prehab was. This was 19 years ago. Now prehab is this, you know, very common term that people throw out. But I was working through the discomfort and pain to stabilize my core, to stretch, to do things, even though it was aggravating things. I knew I needed to do that before I went into surgery. And then I had the surgery. And literally that day after I was walking and I was doing core exercises and I was, I wasn't like going above and beyond, but I was on all fours doing quadruped, doing bracing exercises walking in my neighborhood very slowly, but bracing my core. And uh, within three months, I was out, you know, running and doing most everything I could do again. Within a year, I was pain-free. I mean, there was residual pain just from the healing within like, you know, and I was 27, very young and spry and healthy. You know, that stuff could take a while for to heal. People think it's like overnight, but it was about a year before I felt completely healed. Right. That's wonderful. Yeah. I remember I bumped into one of my patients like 40 after a surgery in uh, Home Depot. And I talked to him and did, uh, she told me, said, Dr. Asley, uh, it wasn't really till like two years after surgery that I, that I eventually said, oh my God, I'm glad I had the surgery. Uh, but she says for two years, I, I doubted my, you know, I, I regretted my decision to proceed with surgery. So, th so that, that, that can happen. That can happen. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's, it's very invasive. You're going in, there's a lot of soft tissue, a lot of things that need to heal. And, you know, that's a very mobile area that, you know, consistently probably gets aggravated. It's not completely stable where when anything you want to heal, you want to isolate it, rest it, you know, and, and, but it's hard to rest right. that area. It's probably, it's constantly being, being manipulated. Correct. But I'm going to have to tell you something that is very important for people to understand. Spine surgery is a very young field. It wasn't until really the invention of MRIs that we could see these discs. So let's say the first MRIs became available mid-80s. 
Well, the first MRIs, they were not very good quality. Let's say it took another 10 years to get better quality. I've seen some of the MRIs from mid-90s, and they were like, okay, they're not even like good quality. I'm like, oh, my God, I can't believe people did surgery based on these images. So if you think about, you know, mid toward late 90s as having a reasonable MRI throughout the country, well, that doesn't give us much time to really understand and study the back problem. Mm. So... That's the first thing that I need to uh, my patients and audience to understand that uh, if you feel like you go to 10 different spine surgeons, you hear 10 different stories, uh, or you get 20 different recommendations, that's because we really just, we're just starting to understand uh, what is happening with the patient. Uh, so that's thing. That's one thing. Two, overall, to make it easier, I divide my patients into two categories. Simple and complex. Simple if they have one or two discs that are bad. Complex if they have three or more. Why? Because if they have one or two discs, the problem is a localized problem. Mm -hmm. no problem. And that, those are the patients that they don't do very well with surgery. People who have one or two discs that are bad, uh, they normally do well. The surgery is good, successful, and I'm pretty sure that's what the condition was for your condition. You know? Yeah, it was. Uh, you see a problem, you go fix it, and the patient is great, does really well. However, when you have three or more discs that are not good, these are the people that they might need surgery and then another surgery and then another surgery. But here comes the situation. Everybody expects to do one surgery and say, hey, I got to get fixed. Well, yeah, you can think about that on people they have localized. But if people have regional problems, like the discs that are just not good quality, well, unfortunately, it's not a realistic expectation of a surgery to just fix them. So in these situations, you're talking about managing the patients, you know, kind of a walking throughout their lifetime and, and maybe a stage surgery. Sometimes I tell in my book that stage surgery it's not a bad idea. It's not a bad idea. Instead of doing one huge surgery, do it in two state surgeries. So if there's a problem, you can figure out what the problem is, as opposed to do big one surgery and then send the patient. If there's a problem, send them to pain management and nobody can ever figure out what the problem is. You know, So these are the things that I really believe spine surgeons haven't done a good job in terms of educating public what we're dealing with. So they mm -hmm. can understand, hey, uh, what's going on? For example, one of the things I tell my patient is that, yes, we do have an MRI. MRI tells us where it could be the damage, but there is no correlation between how the discs look and the, and how bad the pain is. Or uh, the other thing is that, you know, we cannot, we don't have a test to tell us where the pain is coming from. For example, mm -hmm. I'll give you an example. About seven or eight years ago, I had a uh, patient that was a nurse at my hospital. She came to see me. I had an attitude, not, not exactly like this, but I had this confident attitude that, don't worry, I'll fix you. She had a very bad disc in her neck between C5 and C6. Um, but I wasn't that cavalier. Of course, I explained to her you know, all the regular stuff that don't get the surgery, but if you have to get the surgery, that's fine. These are the risks and benefits and stuff. Well, I did the surgery. She didn't get better. I was like, uh oh, she's a nurse at the hospital. What do I do? Oh my God. So I followed her and she stuck with me for a year. I sent her to three different spine surgeons for second opinions. All three said, um, Dr. Azzi did the right surgery. Sorry, this is it. We don't know. You're stuck with this. Well, after a year, I told her, look, there's another disc below the C5, 6, between the six and the seven. There is really, it doesn't look bad. There's a one little tear. And the way you behave, you know, the where the pain stuff, it could be that this. But God forbid, I don't want to talk about another surgery. God forbid, if you do another surgery, you're not better. I won't forgive myself. And I know you're going to be very upset because you've had two surgeries and you still have the pain. So I cannot talk about another surgery, but that's your decision. This is your body. You need to make that decision. She came back to me after a month. She said, I can't live like this. I'm going to take my chances. So I did the surgery on the lower disc. That wasn't bad at all. And all the pain went away. Wow. So this is a, this is a very well-known fact. You can ask any mm -hmm. spine surgeon, they'll tell you that. You can have two discs next to each other. 
One of them looks horrible. The other one, barely something there. Well, it turns out the one that's not bad is the source of the pain. Why? Mm. What we know, what we understand is that it's not the damage that causes the pain. It's the body's attempt to repair the damage that causes the pain, which is inflammation. So it's the inflammation that really causes the pain, not the damage. And that's how I, that, and that's why you have good days and bad days. You know, the MRI doesn't change. You have a good day, you're gone, then you do something. And most, most of the time it's lifting. You do something and then you're bad. And the problem mm. is that there could be delay one, sometimes two, sometimes up to three days delay between what you did like lifting a couch or lifting a keg of beer or something like that. And you can go two, sometimes three days, no pain. The third day, you could be reaching for a piece of paper. You could cough, you could sneeze, and then boom. You feel like somebody hits you with a lightning rod. You have this knife stuck in your back. Uh, I'll give you an example. For example, when I was trained uh, in residency, they were like the argument that, oh, yeah, you can blow your disc out even with a sneeze or a bad cough. Well, I tell you what, after 20 years of practice, I have the answer for that. Uh, more likely what has happened is that that patient lifted a, did something a few days before that. And then the, the cough or the sneeze was just the ignition for that pain to come up. Because if that was true, if a cough or a sneeze can blow your disc, well, every winter, we should have a bunch of people in the emergency room with back injuries. <laughs> and, well, I remember when I had my... Very- I remember when my back, when I had, you know, when I had this going on, um, when I had a sneeze, oh, I had to go find a wall. I was like preparing myself. If I felt a sneeze coming on, if it wasn't too much, like if it didn't come on quick, I was preparing myself, holding on the wall and bracing myself. It was terrible. Like it was really bad. And as soon as I did, it was like somebody shot, like you said, a lightning bolt right in my back. Right. Your case is different because your case, you had a herniation that was pinching on the nerve. So when you sneeze, that this does get kind of a pressure goes up. Yeah, so it gets so that, yeah. that is right, right. That's what it can do. So what's the what's the, the process of the cleanup of a disc? Like what do they like what do they actually do? They cauterize it? Is it how do they how do they keep it confined? They cut all the excess tissue that's sticking out, but then how do they seal it up? It's that's that's the interesting question that you asked. So you make an incision. You can you know you can do it minimally invasively or mini open. Uh, they're pretty much the same. Uh, you go and you open a window. Once you unroof the canal, then you're looking at a nerve, and underneath it there's this little bulge, like looks like a sometimes. I mean, it depends on the size of the disc, but it looks like a little knot or a little um, like a little bead underneath the nerve. So you pull the nerve to the side and you're really looking at it. And then you cut it with knife and it comes out like a, like a watermelon, basically. Kind of, sometimes it gets like squeezed out. So in my practice, I take that piece only. Some people go into the disc and get a, like a safety margin, but I, I, I don't like to touch the disc itself. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I take that out. And that's a very successful surgery. I mean, that's really, that's one of the. And then it heals uh, on its own. The, it heal it heals on its own. It like it like cauterize not cauterizes, but it it, it uh, so when you cut off that little piece, there obviously has to be an opening there. How does that opening and the the you know the, the nucleus of that disc? How does it stay intact? How come it doesn't come seeping out more? Correct, and it can, and okay. that's why. That's, we don't have a technology to patch that disc. We just don't have it. We've tried oh, different things. There's oh, been different companies making a little mesh that you can tack it down and stuff like that. But we don't. That stays open. And what you said can happen. Patient can re-herniate it. Um, but overall, the results are good. You know, mm-hmm. uh, when the patient has back pain, you got to understand, a disc can cause two things. One is the back pain. The other one is the leg pain. The leg mm-hmm. pain, if the patient has leg pain, not much back pain, these surgeries are very successful. But that's if what the I patient had too. has right, if the patient has back pain, that's the that's where we are having difficulty treating. The back pain is what is the most difficult treatment. Mm. And 
you know, so if the patient continues with back pain, then you're going to have to go back and fuse that disc. Means that basically you have to go from the front and the back. You have to go in most of the times from the front, take that disc out completely, put a prosthesis, put a spacer where the disc was and jack that disc space open again so you mm -hmm. restore the height and you unpinch the nerves basically mm -hmm. and um and you basically turn the two bones that are moving against each other banging that disc in the middle you turn into one bone eliminating motion and eliminating pain and that's where st our story begins <laughs> mm -hmm. so yeah so Let, yeah let's go yeah let's go into the book and let's go to your story sure so one of the most common surgeries that we do in the world of spine surgery is a fusion surgery. As we discussed, if the disc between the bones have gone bad, causing back pain, uh, we have to fuse the two vertebrae. And if it's like a one or two level, this patient does great. Actually, they have a chance of getting the brand new back. If it's more than like three or four discs, that's when we have to tell the patient, look, we're going to do this surgery, but you are going to end up in pain because the surgery is a controlled trauma. The surgery itself introduces quite a bit of scar tissue and, you know, and, and disease process in a way to the muscles around their back. So I have to tell these patients that, look, uh, we're going to replace one pain with another pain. So the question is, well, what, what, what does that mean? Pain with another pain? It's like, yes. And trust me, we call that a success. Why? Because the pain before the surgery is a sharp stabbing pain that patient just cannot tolerate. I mean, you, you'll just take your breath away. And no pain medication can help it. But that pain is being replaced by another dull, nagging pain that can be managed by some exercise, by some, uh, you know, pain medicine or so. So it's manageable as opposed to completely like your arm being chopped off or like mm. being stabbed in the back or something like that. And that's... Uh, the patient needs to understand that, look, they're not going to get a brand new back and they might need some further surgeries and that's what we have to do. So anyways, so the fusion surgery, we started doing these surgeries right around 70s and 80s. What we found out was that there was a good number of patients they did not fuse. We would go in, put the prosthesis in, put some bone graft, hoping that the bone graft will turn into a solid bone. We're about 25% of the patients, so one out of four, did not fuse, did not heal it, which is part of patient's biology. Then we figured out, okay, wait a minute. We are all, to, to become a spine surgeon, you can be, either become an orthopedic surgeon, then do a one-year of fellowship in spine surgery, or you can become a neurosurgeon and then become a spine surgeon. I am orthopedically trained spine surgeon, so I became an orthopedic surgeon five years, and then I did one year of fellowship and became a spine surgeon. Well, we had learned from orthopedic surgery in 60s or so that the best way of healing the bone together in the extremity, in the arms and legs fracture, is to hold them together in a rigid fashion with screws and plates. They call the AO technique. AO, like capital A and capital O. They call that AO technique. AO technique is basically rigid fixation of bone ends so they can heal back together again. So, uh, right around makes sense. It's very. I mean, it makes sense. It's a seems like very you right. know very logical place to be. Theory. So, right around 1985, a group of surgeons from France actually they figured out a way to put a big bolt, a big screw that is inserted from back to the front through through this column of bone we call a pedicle. So two screws, on one on each side, they get inserted into the vertebral body from back to front. And these screws have a tulip, have a uh, head that can accept a rod. So if you want to fuse, let's say, five vertebrae, you put five screws on each side, and all of these have a head that can accept the rod. So you put a rod between these five screws, tighten them, and those five vertebrae stay uh, immobilized till the fusion solidifies. And then you put bone graft and hoping that bone turned into a solid bone. Well, that got presented in 1985. And when the surgeons in America saw that, they said, uh-huh, this is what we've been waiting for. This is totally in line with what we learned 
in fracture healing in orthopedic surgery. So they started doing this. Well, initially, the results were not good at all. There were many lawsuits. There were about seven lawsuits against the manufacturer of these screws called Medtronic. They were actually lawyers not only sued the manufacturer, but they sued the doctors too. They sued. There were 500 lawsuits against North American Spine Society and the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons. So in early 1990s, in 1993, a surgeon called Dr. Zedeble published a paper that was authored by him only that said these screws work beautifully. His paper showed that people who did not get, you know, you do the surgery, you do the fusion, then you have a choice. You can either add the screws or you can just leave the screws out. So he was able to show that the people who got the screws, they did far better. They had a very good number of people returning back to work. The pain was gone in most of them. And the people who did not get the screws, they didn't do well. So from that paper on, screw became the uh, uh, standard of care, basically. So everybody, to this now, to this day, everybody gets a fusion surgery in the lower back. They get these screws, okay? So you're with me, right? Oh, yeah, so, with you. Right. So here comes me. I started my practice in 2002. By 2010, I was starting to ask questions in terms of what we do. Why are we doing these things? What we're doing? What we need to do, basically. So I, I realized that, or the whole world of spine surgery realized that we have a problem with screws. Now, a vertebral body, the backbone, is not a solid block of wood. It's not like a brick. It's like a shoebox. The outside shell is a, what we call cortical, but inside bone is a spongy bone we call cancellous bone. And as we get older, the cancellous bone is very susceptible for osteoporosis. Basically, it melts away in el elderly population. Like if you hit 70 or so, especially if you have osteoporosis, the, the, it becomes almost hollow. So we had very difficult problems, especially with the aging population. We were heading into trouble, basically. So I set out to invent a device. So I invented a device, and it was a, a flat plate that sat against the lamina and used composite straps to wrap around the lamina. And then I built a clamp into the base of this uh, tulip. So imagine I have it actually. I'm showing it to you right now. But uh, the audience, if I can explain it to them, uh, so it's a flat plate that sits against the lamina and has a tulip that sticks out of it. In the base of the tulip, there's a clamp. So mm -hmm. the composite straps wraps around the lamina, goes under through this clamp, and it gets tightened like a zip tie. Then the screw on top of the tulip gets tightened, and the clamp clamps the strap. So this device holds on to lamina. Lamina is a cortical bone. Lamina is one of the strongest bones in the body. And uh, if audience have any problem in terms of what lamina is, you know, in my book, the first chapter, I explained the anatomy of the spine. So I explained what lamina is, what pedicle is, and all that stuff. So lamina is part of the vertebrae. That's a cortical, flat bone, solid bone. When you age, it doesn't get affected. So I knew that this is the bone. This is the key to immobilize the spine. So I invented this device. Actually, my device uh, won the Innovation Showcase in Congress of Neurological Surgeons in 2015. Yeah, then you mentioned that in happened. the beginning. This is the Correct. one that you were saying about, yeah. Correct. Then this what happened. By 2016, 2017, I started developing, as I was developing the device, I started having some problems. So I said, well, let me see how the screw uh, has uh, solved this problem or what they're doing in terms of the screw. So I started looking at the literature. And what I found in the literature was just flat out terrifying. So I went back and I looked at the, screw, uh, uh, the articles about the screw. What I found was that after the paper that was published in 1993 by Dr. Zdeblek, so he was the only author. Six other multinational, multi-center papers got published in our spine journal. So not like some 
uh, crappy thing in some other book and stuff. No, it was in our spot. Some of them won awards, Volvo Award winner. And these six papers said that the screws don't work at all. Screws don't increase fusion rate and do not improve outcome. That was shocking when I saw that. I was like, wait, what is this? And I, and I did my research over and over and like, no, that's true. All these papers. Is so I said, you know what? Let me look into this paper in 1993. Let me, let me dissect that a little bit better. And the first thing that I found out, it was shocking. If you, if I tell the audience, if you Google Zedablik spine fusion, you'll see this article. You will notice that this published, this pub per, uh, uh, article was published in 1993. As, as of today, that I checked it right before this podcast, it's been referenced in 1,106 articles. <laughs> this is the most referenced paper in the entire world of spine surgery because it's the only article that says these screws work beautifully. But there's a problem. Right next to that reference, it says, preliminary result. Mm -hmm. Well, I spent two years, I spent two years to look for the final result. I looked at the articles, I looked at the PubMed, and eventually I asked what, in one of these uh, conferences from one of the professors, I said, where's the, he tells me, oh, there is no final result. That's it. That study was abandoned in the middle. It was never finished. <laughs> when he said that, my jaw dropped. I was like, what? An unfinished uh, article is a quintessential anchor for an entire special. That just can't happen. Let me dig a little bit deeper. So I start digging deeper in terms of Dr. Zedeblik, who he is. Now, everything that I'm saying is in Google. This is not some conspiracy theory. What happens is that that company, uh, manufacturing company, Medtronic, had 7,000 lawsuits in 1993. By 1996, those lawsuits started disappearing for lack of evidence. By 1996, as those lawsuits were disappearing, Dr. Zedevlis starts getting paid from that company, uh, allegedly because of some stuff that he has invented. I've seen his inventions, and they're not anyways. So They're not like yours. What is that? They're not like yours. They're not, getting, they're not winning these prizes. No, 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 no. It, it's just like other versions of a screw or yeah. other versions of a spacer, basically. So okay. what I'm trying to tell you is like, as those lawsuits were disappearing, he started getting paid from that. Company. From 1996 till 2004, he got paid $34 million. Hmm. So I was like, wait, well, that's not right. Let me see a little bit more. And this is like, this is all the information that I'm saying has come from an investigation from the United States Senate. So the, you cannot question the source, basically. So by 2005, like 2004, 2005, the Medtronic put him in charge of another important study. Very important. This was a study about a bone graft substitute. You know, we get the bone chips and put it between the two vertebrae, try to get into a solid bone. Well, where you get that bone becomes a problem. So we wanted to have something that we don't have to go hack the bone out. Uh, so kind of a bone graft substitute. Uh, they came out with this hormone. We all have a bone morphogenic protein. Anyway, so they gave this study to Dr. Zedeblik. Guess what? He published the paper in 2005 saying that this stuff works great. This time he got caught by United States Senate for falsifying his results. Mm. As a matter of fact, United States Senate did an investigation to all these uh, all of his studies and the communication between him and the Medtronic. And they found that they came to conclusion. This is the United States Senate came to conclusion that paper that Dr. Zdeblik published in 2005 was not written by him, was written by the company's marketing department. Hmm. Both of those guys, this is all in my uh, book, both of those guys, uh, they said, oh, we denied any wrongdoing. But this is something, uh, a, a conclusion from the United States Senate. So I was like, wait a minute. So here we are, six multinational, multi-center, uh, award-winning paper says that these screws don't work. And only one paper done by one, which was never finished, 
done by one man who has been proven that he alters his results. What is going on? Uh, you know, so I started thinking. It took me three, four years to come up with the answer. But for three, four years, and of course, audience might, might ask me, because that's what everybody asks me. Do you use the screws? Absolutely. I use screws. Every day I do these surgeries because it's the standard of care. I'm not going to uh, start practicing my own uh, brand of medicine. I'm going to go, but my goal is to change the standard of care. Mm-hmm. Two, do you, did you bring this up with the leaders of your field? Absolutely, I have. I am not just writing this paper. I'm not just doing this podcast. I go to conferences twice a year. I have ambushed these professors, so-called leaders of the field. I have uh, chased them. Uh, They have cussed at me. They have run away from me. Uh, They know me. Uh, And I brought brought this. And some of them, don't get me wrong, some of them are like that, but most of them are very, very nice. They're professors, you know, professionals. And I brought this question. I'm like, how do you explain this? And this is what they tell me without... Uh, uh, they all say the same exact thing. We know that to this day, we have not been able to show with research that these screws work, but we know that they work and we will in the future. And I was like, wait a minute. Every time you fail to show that something works, you've just shown that thing didn't work. These are Mm -hmm. not two separate events. Mm -hmm. You've clearly shown that the screws don't work. So what is going on? I was like, so let me ask you something, doctor, that maybe uh, I'm sure the audience is thinking is you, you, you use these screws as you just, uh, you know, confessed there. What results do you get from it? Are you getting benefit and result and positive results or are you getting more negative results? Well, I am not, I am not doing a study. It's not like I have two group of patients. Some of them get screws, some of them don't get screws. Mm-hmm. I follow the standard of care. So all my patients are getting those screws. And, and what's the outcome know, typically? I mean, are they, are, are they mostly positive? Uh, outcome is always typical. If they have one or two discs that are bad, the results are very good. Patients so based are based on what you said. Okay. Right, right, right. And if they have three or four more discs, you know, then those are the people that they do not so great and they have residual problem and then you have to follow them. But but, now, the, but, what, that, but, but what, I, what I might, you know, argue is that that may not come from the screws. It's coming from other, you know, other, like you said, the, the trauma to the muscular, to muscle, the muscular system and other systems near and, and at that area of local, of local, uh, um, you know, displacement. Correct. I need to uh, make audience and you understand that this is very important for you to understand. Yeah. The medical, the spine research doesn't say those six papers that got published don't say that the surgeries don't work. No. The, the evidence, the study so far is overwhelming that the spine surgery does work. Except these papers are saying that we don't have to make it that much more expensive. Mm-hmm. So the surgery fusion works, discectomy works, but we don't have to make it so expensive. So ad- adding the screws doesn't add anything to the benefit. That's what it says. I see. I see. Okay. okay that. that's, so it doesn't say that the stuff doesn't work. What we do doesn't work. No, Got spine it. surgery works. We're going in the wrong direction, except that, that what we're adding to screws are not making a difference in terms of the outcome. That's what the research is saying. So th- this, may be in, this may be in your book, but, you know, coming to a, a close in, in the kind of the conversation, because we're getting close to our time here, where do you see spinal surgery, spine surgery in the next five years? Um, this is, where would you like to see it? This is my goal. I had to answer that question. I, uh, I, I spent three years to answer that very same question, and it hit me. We become orthopedic surgeons. We study five years to become orthopedic surgeons. Then we did one year, only one year of spine surgery, and then we became spine surgeons. Well, that's not enough. We learned everything we learned from orthopedic surgery. We applied that knowledge to spine surgery. We should have never done that. Spine surgery was never meant to be a subspecialty of orthopedic surgery. It's mm-hmm. almost like learning uh, 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 like the Newtonian physics 
and quantum physics. Newtonian, if you want to build a house, you can use Newtonian. But if you want to shoot a, a rocket to the moon, you have to use quantum physics. That's exactly what I'm getting at. What worked for general orthopedics is not going to work for spine. Why? For example, this is what I tell my patients. Or, or how, The concept of rigid fixation works in extremity because you can eliminate gravity. If they're in the arm, you have a sling. In the leg, if you have construct that's not very strong, you can put the patient on crutches and get them weight, non-weight-bearing. In spine, you cannot eliminate gravity. You cannot suspend the patient in the air for about three months. So the device that you have has to have some sort of a give, not rigid. I don't call it flexible, but I call it reactive. We have to have new set of devices that I call it reactive rigid fixation. The concept is no different than building a high-rise in San Francisco in an earthquake zone. You don't make the high-rise stiff. You make it a little bit flexible. So if there's an earthquake, it can give and dissipate their energy as opposed to cut out and fall down and just the same concept. So what I would like is that spine surgery should be a specialty of its own. It needs at least five years of training and, and not just some afterthought. Uh, spine surgery was never meant to be a subspecialty of orthopedic surgery or neurosurgery. That's what I'm trying to So we got it wrong from the beginning. We have to, we've, we should have never applied what we learned in orthopedic surgery to spine. So when you say that, so, the, so you're saying the curriculum is in the universities is where you need to start. Like that's, you know, in the postgraduate studies, that's where you should begin to transform the way that you do surgery. Not necessarily the techniques, but where the education starts and then how it's followed through. And you're always going to have, I mean, one university is going to be different from another university. Is, is, there, is there a standard of care through all the different universities or is, is it one? No, right now, the, uh, uh, what I went through, I did five years in orthopedic surgery and my exposure to spine that five years was very minimal. Then I did only one year, one year of spine surgery. And then I started practicing as a spine. That's just not enough. After 20 years of practice, I'm realizing that that was nothing. Spine surgery is so complex, so complex. In one year, you just learn how to put the screws in. That's it. You know, you, you just don't learn who to do surgery on, how to evaluate the patient, what, you know. And unfortunately, a lot of my colleagues, they don't transition to the next step in their practice. Why? They hire PAs. They have, if you go right now, if you go to an NHC in the spine, you're not going to see the spine. You're going to see a PA. You're going to be mm -hmm. evaluated by people. I, 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 I was uh, treating a patient uh, from Nevada. He was telling me, if you put my surgeon in a lineup, I cannot tell you who he is. I never saw him before surgery. I saw him five minutes before the surgery, and I never saw him again. So what, what is happening is that once the surgeons decrease their contact with the patient, they stop learning. Because mm -hmm. spine surgery is not about just doing the surgery. Spine surgery is about selecting the appropriate surgery for the appropriate patient. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I'll give well, you an example. You're, yeah, do, do I, I actually have to, I have to get going. I have an appointment sure. uh, right now, yeah. but I... Um, I wanted to just finish, like if somebody's experiencing back pain right now, um, it's debilitating. A lot of times people don't know where to go. Um, what would you recommend as the first kind of point of care? Um, would you say I, go see an orthopedist or somebody I, like yourself? I, and then I, you're really out? Sure. I really like the chiropractors. Uh, they're almost uh, around. If you can get a recommendation, I do too. I, I've had success with chiropractic as well, right. and with myself right. and my clients. Yeah, yeah. I love chiropractic. As a matter of fact, I tell people that I rather chiropractic over physical therapy. Why? Because in physical therapy, you have to put the patients in a large range of motion, try to stretch those ligaments, and patients just cannot tolerate that. So mm -hmm. chiropractic care with manipulations, they got the upper hand of stretching those ligaments and decompressing the area. So yeah. uh, how do you choose a good chiropractor? I don't know. If you know a recommendation from a friend, that's helpful. If not, just walk into your local chiropractic office and try them. Give them a shot. Try it like two, three times. If it helps yeah. you, if you like what they do, 
stick with him. If not, you can go to another chiropractor down, you know, a few blocks up. So I really like chiropractors and I, and I back him, um, you know, just like anybody else, you know, any profession, you have good ones and bad ones, any profession, spine surgery, yeah. good things and bad ones, you know. Uh, but, but I think that I will definitely start with a chiropractor. Awesome. Great. Well, Doctor, I appreciate your conversation. I pre- appreciate your passion and education and knowledge, you know, towards this area of expertise. I know for one that, I mean, you and the other, the, the spine surgeon that did my, my surgery saved my life. Literally, I was, I would have done anything to get out of the pain that I was in. And I mean, there, if you've never experienced back pain, it is debilitating. It is just, you think about it all the time. Your normal body functions don't work the same. I couldn't, I couldn't poop normally. I was, you know, like I said, was sneezing. I would hold on. My sex drive was completely lost. I it just, everything was, anything that I did was, was exasperated. I, I couldn't, couldn't think about moving normally. And it was always on my mind. Pain became a constant conversation within my mind and my subconscious mind. I, and I had to get out of it. And you guys did an awesome job and I'm grateful for that. So I applaud you for the work that you continue to do and the help that you provide for others that are in pain, because it feels great to be out of pain and live pain-free even 19 years later. So, right. Yeah. So thank you for your work and thank you for your uh, welcome. Your thank you. I'm to, trying. <laughs> yeah, well, you're doing a great job. Your commitment to you know raising the standards. We need more people like you in every profession. That's what I'm doing in the health and fitness and wellness industry is raising the standard of care, raising the standard of awareness, and you're creating an awareness for people so they can better educate themselves. And as you said, they can make the choice. Right. That's can where it all boils down to. Can I just say one final thing, please? Yeah. I just I just can't understand how this paper that was published in 1993 and was referenced by 1,106 articles, nobody even raised the question, where's the final report? I, it just baffles me. It's just crazy. You know, I, am I the only one that comes along and say, hey, what's going on here? It's just, you know, anyways. But what I, what I want to tell public is that we are going in the right direction. We do have inventions like laser drilling, different materials, 3D printing, we, we can make appropriate devices for the spine. So we are definitely going in the right direction. We are learning quite a bit from back pain and generators or so. So future is very bright. Awesome. Great. Well, if you want to learn more and you learn more about this type of information and get more detail about this controversy, get doctor's book. It's called Corporate Spine corporate spine. And I'll send you the guys, the, the links to the site and everything else. So again, doc, thank you so much for being here. I appreciate you. And until next time, stay healthy, fit, live pain-free everybody.